reading today from the Song of Zazen, uh, which was written by Hakuin, a, uh, a figure from the 17th century who was uh, known as a revivalist of the Zen tradition in Japan. I think religions often need to have these revivalists every now and again, maybe like St. Francis of Assisi that come and challenge the uh, ossification of a, of a particular tradition. Um, it's, it's called the Zazen Wasan, which is a chant um, to Zazen, which is sitting, literally seated meditation, but I think more generally refers to spiritual practice. Um, but of course, in the Zen tradition, which is seated meditation. So. Here we go. We will surely be blessed most infinitely, but if we concentrate within and testify to the truth that self-nature is no nature, we have really gone beyond foolish talk. The gate of the oneness of cause and effect is opened. The path of non-duality and non-trinity runs straight ahead. To regard the form of no form as form, whether going or returning, we cannot be any place else. To regard the thought of no thought as thought, whether singing or dancing, we are the voice of the Dharma. How boundless the clear sky of samadhi, how transparent the perfect moonlight of the fourfold wisdom. At this moment, what more need we seek? As the truth eternally reveals itself, this very place is the lotus land of purity. This very body is the body of the Buddha. Thank you, Richard. Beautifully read. <clears throat> so I'm going to be testing you on that. <laughs> And um, if you think I'm going to unpack that, you've got another thing coming. Because <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> but when you read those things, you know, and you read some of these readings, I mean, you get a sense that all this uh, stuff that we talk about, and even all this stuff that I mentioned earlier on, you know, it's all about the perfection of all things. You know, it actually, you know, all our spiritual stuff, all seems to point to the idea that all things are perfect. That somehow, if we just sort of get that, get ourselves into the right place through yoga or whatever it is, that we will ah, see the perfection of all things. That in some way, whatever happens, this is the whole spiritual shtick that you get most of the time from here and everywhere else, that whatever happens to you is a part of something greater and therefore fits into an evolving reality that makes whatever's going on with us on a micro level, whatever's happening to us, it makes it okay on a macro level because everything is perfect. In Christian terms, if you go to various churches, you'll hear people say that God has a plan for you. Obviously, it's a bit difficult that, you know, thought of God having, you know, thinking out what's going to happen in my life. But that, you know, they do talk about that, you know. And the Tao talks about, there, you know, it says, there was something formless and perfect before the universe was born. It is serene, empty, unchanging, solitary. And they had that sense of the perfection. And the Buddhist texts have the idea of paramita, of completeness, 
or perfection. And in the Upanishads, we like to cover all our bases here, in the, in the, the, the Upanishads has, uh, Hindu scripture has the idea of purna or completeness. Om. That is perfect. This is perfect. When perfection is taken from the perfect, perfect alone remains. Om, peace, peace, peace. And, and, you know, there is this idea throughout all spirituality that all is complete and perfect. You know, Julian of Norwich, where we came from, you know, that all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. Why worry, says Jesus? Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, that what you'll eat or drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? There is this idea that God is in his or her or its heaven. God is in his or her or its heaven. And that fundamentally, the world is okay. And yet, living on this planet, it just doesn't seem that way. You know, on a macro level, we look at the news, we see chemical weapons being used, we see wars, we see famines, we see floods. We see people in concentration camps. We see weapons of mass destruction. You know, we see stupidity on an international scale. And in our lives too, you know, we crash and burn. We have problems in our family life, with our health, with our money. We see friends and loved ones die. We see problems around us. And life generally feels, to say at the least, a bit of a struggle. So both on a micro level and a macro level, it certainly doesn't feel like everything's perfect. It, you know, it's more feels like, you know, life sucks and then you die. There's an uplifting message from the chapel. I, mean, I, went, to, I went to the chapel today. He told me that life sucks and then you die. That's why you go to the Aspen Chapel. <laughs> um, so how... Yeah, this is what this next series is going to be about. How do we explain the dichotomy between these two perspectives of life? Yeah, the optimistic spiritual perspective that holds, you know, to meaning and to purpose and perfection, and the actual the actuality of rage and drama and death. Well, I think you know the first thing uh, that resolves this is to say that you know yes the universe is perfect but in its perfection it seems that it doesn't really care about us it seems that way it doesn't really care about the universe may be perfect but it doesn't really care about yours or my predicament you know i love that quote from neil degrasse tyson he says that the universe is under no obligation to make any sense to you. The universe has no obligation to make sense to you. You know, we might feel pain in our lives, but the universe is not going to tell us why that matters. 
or do anything about it, which of course throws us into that existential angst because we want the universe to care about us and our problems. We want it to explain to us why we've got those problems. And we want to work out what those problems are about and how they all relate to everything else. But in reality, it seems not to. You know, we can be in the water watching that shark coming towards us, waiting to feel its jaws clamp down on us. And we know that the universe doesn't give a damn. You know, as the blood pools around us, someone somewhere is drinking a banana daiquiri. (laughs) The sun will rise again, and all that would be left of us is the odd diluted molecule with no one but the people we know to care about it. And that's how really we feel about it. And that's a bummer. It's a a spiritual term, that. (laughs) That's a bummer. And, you know, on a, on a serious level, and by that I mean, you know, beyond the hypothetical, you know, we have people in awful situations and circumstances crying out for help and, and it doesn't come. You know, where is that caring universe in the gas chambers? Where is the perfection in the gulag? Where is God's love in the foaming mouths of children in Syria? These are what religions call impossible questions. But, but I don't think they should be. We should be able to provide answers, to give either some hope about the world or abandon the whole stupid idea that there is a God that cares. You know, that wonderful quote from Gloucester in Lear, you know, as flies to wanton boys are we to the gods. They kill us for their sport. As flies to wanton boys are we to the gods. They kill us for their sport. And, you know, the idea is really expressed through a lot of the myths and, uh, that we've got in the world. You know, you look at those Greek myths and legends. You know, Prometheus, who gave fire to humans, he was chained to a rock And every day an eagle, which represented Zeus, would come down and tear open his flesh and eat Prometheus's liver. And every night the liver would regrow, only to be devoured again the next day. In this case, his torture would be never-ending. In some ways we know how that feels, you know, in the way that we live our lives. Tantalus is another one. Tantalus was made to stand in a pool of water with a fruit tree nearby, with the branches heavily and laden with delicious fruit. And the story goes that Tantalus had a great thirst, but every time he went to drink the water, it would recede and leave him nothing. And he had ravenous hunger, but the fruit would always be just out of his grasp, infuriatingly close. He was just, that's where we get the word tantalized from. And Atlas, and some of us feel like this, was punished to stand at the edge of the Western world and eternally carry the heavens on his shoulders in order to prevent the celestial plane and the earth from ever touching. You know, some of us in families do feel like that. You know, we have to sort of prevent the disaster from coming about. You know, we feel like these Greek gods and the pain that they suffered. And the stories, I mentioned this on Easter Day, the stories really 
are there to explain away the awfulness that many people felt about the world. That's what, that was the purpose of these myths. And, you know, it's not just confined to uh, uh, myths and legends from Greeks. Look at, you know, Judeo-Christian culture. You know, we have Job, who God let the devil persecute because the devil wanted to prove that man didn't really love God. And everyone he loved, Job loved, was killed, and he ended up on a rubbish heap covered with sores, you know. We try to explain away our anguish alongside our concept. Uh, we, we try to explain away our anguish alongside our concept of and desire for a divine nature by spinning stories that explain why the gods exist or why God exists, and yet why we still have a hard time. These stories are designed to explain that to us. <clears throat> you know, the devil's a classic example. The whole idea that God, in his perfection, would have an angel that was less than perfect and would fall to hell and eternally torment humanity is our way of explaining away why life is often so rubbish. And then we spin a story the whole story about how God solved this by having a son and then have his son die in order to make up for all that, you know, if we, you know, accept, if we accept that that happened, then we too will be saved and able to go through. And, you know, we make these stories in order for us to experience why these two things come together. We tell them so that we can feel better about the fact that we want to believe that God is in his heaven or her heaven or its heaven, and all is well in the world, yet that doesn't really square with often our experience of life. We've squared that particular circle between our experience and our aspiration by coming up with stories that explain the difference. You know, Cain and Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah, the exile, Jesus' revelation. And just to annoy you, there's a wasp just flying around here that is part of myself. It's just been released. There we are. And it'll come to my hand now. Come to me. <laughs> oh, dear. And that all makes us feel that there's a reason why we feel so bad and yet God is good. I'm still wondering, it'll go away. I, I, I'm, but the question we have to ask is, is, is God really good? If we strip away those stories and the reasons we've given as to why there's a difference, then, you know, what do we have left? Well, we're left with a world and a universe that undoubtedly works and carries on for some reason. You know, the sun never doesn't come up. It always has its hat on, and the nature always looks beautiful, whether or not she is red in tooth and claw. We can look out there and see the perfection that exists in life. And when we look at the small, we also see the perfection. We see it in the movement of the atoms, in the perfection that makes everything work, that keeps us alive and that keeps everything going. We see it in the patterns of life. You know, in those fractals I put on, on the uh, service sheet, that the top one is a digital pattern. It was only recent, William was telling me, it was only recently that we were able to see that pattern. It was a mathematical formula. And it's only because of supercomputers that we can make that pattern happen. 
And the evolving symmetry, the replication of that on every scale, a self-similar pattern, and why nature uses that. And you can see at the top of the service sheet, that's a natural pattern, that. It's not been created by anything, by mathematics. It's been a natural pattern that's arrived in nature. So when we look out there, we see that perfection, we see that perfection, we can witness it. Whether we look at a telescope, whether we look at it through a telescope or a microscope or with our naked eye, we can testify to, to that which looks perfect. And so we can see that, so we want to believe there's a perfection that goes back to some sort of God. We want to believe that there's a perfection to go, that goes back to some sort of a God. And in the old days, that God was Zeus riding his chariot across the sky. That was the, that's how they explained it. And then it was an old man with a beard up there, you know, sorting things out in a just and fair way. And then there was a younger man up there, a bit nicer, a bit more middle class, you know, who was going to come back to us on a cloud, you know. That, that, that was how it was then fixed up. Then for a while it was nature itself, alone and cold in its reason. And we thought that was how everything came about. And now it's the consciousness of quantum physics, the greater self. All of these are explanations of the perfection. But still, it is quite a stretch joining that perfection to the experience of our own lives being messy and out of control. So how do we square that particular circle? And I'm just going to be looking at that over the next few weeks. And the first, first way I think we do square that is obviously from a position of perspective. You know, your perspective affects the way that you look at something. If I had a ray gun... I would still let it go because I'm that sort of a guy. Right. You just have to stay with me and the, and the, the wanton danger that is circling around us at the moment. Because that's just a metaphor for life. We all have that wanton danger. And this is just an added bit that uh, shows us. So how do we, how do we square that circle? And it's, I'm saying, first of all, it's perspective. Your perspective affects the way that you look at something and the way that you feel about it. You know, look at the earth from space, and it looks very different from the way we look at it from here. The way you look at things affects the way that you think and feel about them, which is why we tell ourselves stories of the world. We tell those stories in order to affect our perspective. We tell ourselves these ideas so it changes our perspective. But that perspective can and does make a real difference to the way that we act also. Once we change our perspective, it affects the way we act. When your perspective is that your house is on fire, right? When your perspective is that your house is on fire, then your purpose is to put it out, right? When you see that your house is on fire because we are under attack from aliens and that the world is about to come to an end, then you forget about your house and you play a bigger game. The, the perspective that you have affects the way that you act and look about things. The bigger the perspective, the more that you can get a handle on what's really going on in life and act accordingly. You know, a meth addict's perspective is all about getting more meth. 
That is a math addict's perspective. A concerned parent's perspective is all about looking after their kids. A corporate CEO has whatever perspective a corporate CEO has. Each has a different purpose in life and each acts according to the perspective they have and acts, you know, acts according to that. And that affects the way that you look at what is right in front of you, that burning house. Your perspective on it affects the way you behave. So the whole conversation that we have together about spirituality and about evolution is really a way of looking at things from a perspective that's going to make us feel better about our rubbish lives and give us a reason and purpose for carrying on. When you have a perspective that the world began 13.7 billion years ago and that evolution is a function of consciousness and that we're the flower of, we are the flower of consciousness and that when we express love rather than hatred or selfishness, then we're changing not only ourselves but the whole world through that aspect. Now, that has an impact on the way that we act. That sort of spiritual perspective is there to have us act in a loving way. Our spirituality becomes the perspective through which we look at our lives. And it makes us feel better about those lives. So the gap that we have between experience and aspiration that I mentioned earlier can be bridged by the perspective we have on what's going on. And that can and does address our direst situations, the nature of perspective. You know, it can, that perspective, affect the way we feel about the death of a loved one or about our own death. Or it can affect the way we feel about being trapped in an unjust situation. We can see that situation from a perspective that gives us hope that our life does have meaning. And that whether anyone sees it or not, we know that the way that we're conducting ourselves in the face of this terribleness will have some effect on the greater whole. But, you know, what is there beyond perspective? It could be that this perspective is just another way of telling ourselves a story about our lives to make us feel better. We can still go, always come back to that, that it's about telling ourselves something, creating a context to make us feel better. Is it any better that Zeus is crossing the sky in his chariot or that Jesus is dying for the sins of the world? Is not the idea of us being a part of a greater consciousness just another story that we're telling ourselves to make us feel better? And actually, I think it is. Because the stories we're telling ourselves are just ways that our mind uses to make us feel better about what's happening to us. To really explore the dichotomy between the supposed perfection of all things and the way that we experience our lives, we have to go beyond what the mind is telling us and right into the nature of being itself, what Ritter was talking about. That idea of being in that place. I haven't got the reading in front of me now. Yes, I have. A being in that place to regard form of no form as form, whether going or returning, we cannot be in any place else. To regard the thought of no thought as thought. The idea that somehow we can abandon that concept of reason. Which is why we use meditation to discipline the mind. That is... That is the next step in that. 
not just meditation, but the idea of going beyond the stories that we tell us. In order to work out this dichotomy, we, we have to go beyond the stories. We have to go into somewhere of no mind. We have to go into a place where it's not all about what we're telling ourselves all the time. But somehow we have to experience it. When we do that, when we come to that point, when we go beyond what our mind is telling us, that's when we grow up. You know, we talked about last series about becoming the adult in the room. When we go beyond the stories, that's when we grow up. We say, I'm not going to believe any of the stories that my mind is telling me. I'm going to realize that I will never know why this dichotomy exists. I'm going to realize that. I can only stand in the midst of that dichotomy and begin to understand it. I can only stand in the midst of this. We spoke last week about the word understanding. It doesn't mean under, beneath. In this sense, the word under means in the midst of. Understanding is to be in the midst of something. We have to stand in the middle of the dichotomy and let it rage around us. To go back to Leah, like Leah did on the heath. Blow winds and crack your cheeks, rage blow, your cataracts and hurricanos spout, till you have drenched our steeples, drowned the cocks, you sulfurous and thought-executing fires, vaunt couriers to oak-cleaving thunderbolts, singe my white beard, and thou, all-shaking thunder, smite flat, the thick rotundity of the world, crack nature's moles and Germans spill at once that make ingrateful man. There is a story of the, the whole idea of the storm on the heath is that storm of the dichotomy that we're talking about. Lear is about reason against aspiration, against experience. His aspiration was to give his daughters, divide his kingdom, all is wonderful in the world, and he's left on the heath mad. That is how we feel. And next week, we're going to look at what it means to stand in the midst of all that and have it rage around us and how we explore whether or not there is actually something out there that actually cares. Bit of a cliffhanger, I'm afraid, but otherwise you'll be here until next week, which we don't want to be. Okay, let's pray. I know we do think of our world at the moment. We think of the international madness and stupidity that happens everywhere. We think of all those affected by war and bombs and terror and fear. And we particularly pray for our leaders in the world that you will give them new hearts to listen, that you will give them new hearts to feel, that you will give them a wisdom of love and that our our wisdom in the world may be affected by your love. We pray you come into the hearts and minds of all those around us And still that rage and bring that sense of peace out. We particularly pray for all those injured, affected, bereaved. Pray for all those people in Syria, 
people in Palestine, people in Israel, people all over the world suffering as a result of rage and difficulty. We pray for people suffering as a result of famine, natural disasters, difficulty. We pray for those suffering in prisons, in hospitals, wanting to understand, wanting to feel that peace. And we pray for those in our own community. We first of all, praise those who are dear to us in our hearts, people that we know are suffering at the moment. We just remember those in our hearts and minds. Pray for those who are uh, in our own community, Tricia Nichols, Patricia Hill, Will Welsh, Barbara Orcutt, Sandy St. John, Bill Archer, Nathan Morse, Sophia Layton, Casey McClanahan, Bo Topher, Jamshid Mogadam, who's suffering a disabling and chronic tinnitus, and Mary-Kate Hounstein in China has asked us to pray for peace in the Middle East, that all our soldiers and humanitarians and journalists make it home safely and that they feel our love and support and protected by God. And we do pray for Mary-Kate, who's uh, out there in China at the moment. We ask you to touch all those people, all those situations with your healing love. Amen. <laughs>